Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. Hey everybody, once again, so good to have you here. Uh, I know last last time we ended there in that the whole idea of Israel uh, coming out of Egypt, the fact that it these Hebrews had a lot to come out from out from, not just the physical slavery that was going on, but the emotional uh, bondage that just happens. I, I thought of it again uh, last night. Actually, somebody was talking to me, and I thought this person. Like there's just a lot of bondage they're under because of what I would consider religious mindsets that they got involved in, you know, as a, as a kid. It just, everything seemed right when you're a kid. This is the life. This is the life I should expect when I become a spouse. And this uh, happened to be, um, you know, a woman. And, you know, the stuff that she submitted to was just, it became very... It became like, like, yeah, bondage. It was a bondage, an emotional bondage. But, but stepping away from it still becomes an incredible journey of having to choose a different lifestyle, having to choose over and over again that that no, I'm done with this life. I'm done. I'm done with that that mindset. I'm done with that paradigm in which I see life from. And so you've got. A nation filled with with women, children, men, entire households that have never known anything except sub- subjugation to the Egyptians. And this concept of a God that's way out there somewhere that everybody worships and that we're all unified under. But I think for a lot of people, it becomes a it became a god that they unified under because it wasn't the e- Egyptians, and it was the one thing that they still had in their life that the Egyptians didn't control. The Egyptians didn't make them worship idols, and they were able to maintain a a worship set that the Egyptians didn't interfere with, and that becomes this place of freedom, right? That becomes this place where, well. We're not complete slaves because at least we can still worship God. And that happens, you know, to a lot of people. They're willing to submit to just about anything, but but please, you know, let me keep going to church. I think, uh, you know, that woke up a lot of people or surprised a lot of people, I think, at the, at the, the first round of COVID shutdowns. When they shut down the churches, that rattled a lot of a lot of at least American citizens. They were like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute." You, I don't think you can do that. Now here in America, that was true, right? And but but that didn't stop the government from trying, and it didn't stop well over half the churches from complying. I would say probably <clears throat> about ninety percent of them probably complied at least initially because they were afraid. They were afraid of losing their tax exemption. They were afraid that they would, you know, that the pastor would, the pastor might be, you know, thinking, well, I'm going to end up in the news. I'm the rebel. I'm, you know, YouTube, Facebook is going to label me this horrible person because I'm out here killing grandma by, by not complying with the, with the state's requirement, the mandates, not laws, just mandates, just pressure. 
and they and they conformed and complied. And so I would imagine that that being able to continue to worship Yahweh for the Hebrews was a big deal. They were still at some level thinking, we are our own people. And uh, changing that, like the emotional changes of coming out of Egypt, it's huge. It's huge. And I think that Moses doesn't have a complete concept of the amount of work this is going to take. I think God understands it. But he's already, you know, he he uh, he knows that that he can walk people through it because he is a wonderful shepherd and a wonderful counselor and an amazing God of love and hope and joy. And he's like, this is going to be awesome when they walk out into freedom. When they truly walk out of Egypt, this is going to be amazing. But first, we have to start making these steps, and the first step was to convince. <laughs> Moses and Aaron to make that next step because they had already been rejected. And they decided to, you know, have this interaction with God. And after the interaction with God, they were at least willing to take the next step to go talk to Pharaoh. And that is where we pick up today in verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his staff in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. A snake. Pharaoh then summoned the men, wise men, and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also, and they did the same thing by their secret arts. So each one threw down its staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. So there you go. They decide to take the next step. We're going to go talk to Pharaoh. There's there's some excitement, anticipation, optimism, wonder, curiosity, dread, fear, excitement. Those those all those emotions are so intense, and you know if they were on a scale of like color scale or whatever, <clears throat> they would all be versions of the same color. Now, as a as a painter, right? I painted for years uh, for a variety of, of people. Sometimes full time, sometimes part time, sometimes just on my own uh, doing side work. But it was an amazing gift that my father gave me to teach me how to paint really well and to. You know, uh, but well, we don't need to go into how awesome I am at that. But I was really good at it. I've kind of moved away from it because physically, it just—it's man, it's painful now. Uh, I'm so out of shape for like full-time painting. But I was really good. But I, you know, it'd be all the all these emotions would be on the same color scale. I remember how many how many color whites there were. Right? Somebody'd be like, "Well, I want to paint my, you know, my bathroom white." It's like, okay, do you know which white? Well, yeah, just white. Awesome. Why don't you go down to the store? <laughs> I'll give you the name. You go look at the whites, and you come back with a color, and I'll paint your bathroom. So, you know, they're usually amazed because there's like 15 colors. And so I like these emotions, thrill, anticipation, optimism, wonder, excitement, dread, fear. All those things are like the same color scheme, intense, awesome. They make an appointment. 
oh man, we're really gonna we're really gonna do this. We're really gonna do this. This is gonna be great. This is gonna be awful. This is gonna be amazing. This could really this could ruin our lives. We are gonna lead the people free. We could end up in prison. We are gonna we are, the people are gonna rally and the Egyptians are gonna you know fall and worship the Lord, or we could end up dead. Like <laughs> it's just, just they had to be all over the place. And if if those two brothers process anything like my wife and I, like I'm I'm an internal I'm an internal processor that needs to verbalize. So I need to talk out loud. Uh which means I pretty much have to be alone because if you hear me processing, you don't know what what I'm actually, you know, it, I may sound very convincing because I I process the point to its logical extreme and then I then I then I evaluate everything I just said and I was like, ah, no, I don't. No, I'm not going to go that way. You know, this is, <laughs> or I think, yeah, no, actually, this is good. So I end up talking to myself a lot, and I have to be careful that no one else is around because I'd end up on drugs, and, and then I wouldn't be able to process because I'd be quiet all the time in my brain, and my brain wouldn't know what to do. So my my others, my wife, is an external processor. So a lot of times she's externally processing, so she's also verbal, but I have, I, you know, have learned, we've been married together, you know, over 35 years. I've learned to allow her that space to not respond to what she's saying until, until I hear, a, you know, certain, there's certain vocabulary that she will use. And it's like, okay, this is actually where she's landing. Now we, you know, now I, if I have more input, I can give her that input. Or if I, if I don't think it's a good plan, I can bring it up now. So, I don't know what kind of processing, you know, Aaron and Moses had, but I imagine they worked together and I imagine they were both zigzagging back and forth for a while in anticipation of the appointment. Now, I don't know how long an appointment takes. I don't know if you get one in a day. I don't know if you get one on the first try. It does say that that uh, in the previous chapter, remember the overseers, the Hebrew overseers saw Moses and Aaron at the gate, which speaks of the fact that they were at least recognized by Egypt as leaders, and they weren't out in the fields trying to gather straw and make bricks. They were at a gate where official recognized ambassadors would have been sitting, so maybe they could get an appointment a little quicker than than a random slave, you know, from the from the desert or desert from the you know from the brick factory. All that to say, I still have no idea how long it took, but eventually they get in. They get in to talk to him, and the Lord had said, "Listen, when when you get there, Pharaoh's going to ask you for a miracle." Now we don't get those quotes in these verses, but the Lord said He's going to ask you, and we get in the verses that it actually happens. So we're gonna, I'm going to make the leap that Pharaoh did ask. And why would the Lord say He's going to ask? Is because again, the Lord understands all possibilities, and He understands the odds of all possibilities, and He lets His kids know what's going to probably happen in the future, and he's incredibly accurate about it. Why? Because he knows way more than even the enemy, who is also incredibly accurate, but he didn't create. He only observes. So he still gets surprised, and and he's so arrogant and prideful that he overplays his confidence in what people will do, and sometimes he gets surprised and gets burned. And, And someone like Moses shows up after 40 years in the wilderness, and he's like, dang it. Now I got to wipe out this nation even quicker. And the Lord's like, ha ha, my plan is to, is to rescue everyone. 
So now we've got a battle going on. So the Lord's like, listen, he's going to ask you for a miracle because I know him. That's that's so I'm just I just want you to be prepared. When he does, tell Aaron to throw down his staff, it'll become a snake. I love that he tells him this, but he doesn't tell him what he thinks the rest of the story is going to be, even though he probably knows that the Pharaoh is going to bring in the magicians. Now, why would Pharaoh ask for this? Well, I'll get to that in a second. Well, I'll just tell you. I think he's going to ask for the for a miracle. He's going to ask for a sign that they're actually connected to a God that has some sort of power. Remember last time when they spoke, Pharaoh belittled the fact that their God had no power because the whole nation was enslaved. And he was so so God's like, this time he's going to ask you to prove that I have some sort of uh, you know power. And so this is what we're going to do. That's why that's what I think God understands the way Pharaoh thinks, and that's what Pharaoh's going to ask for. And why he's going to ask it. So Pharaoh is prepared for this meeting. He, I don't know if he got a list every morning of who's scheduled to come see him. I don't know if he found out, you know, who's scheduled next, and and then would decide whether or not they actually wanted to see him. Because I don't think Pharaoh necessarily set up his appointments. Other people set up his appointments, and then they would tell Pharaoh, "We have the ambassador from this. We have the 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 trade." Uh, commissioner from this, we have this merchant who would who has a complaint against this, yada yada yada. And somewhere on that list, they say Moses and Aaron are here again to make a request of the you know of the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh's like, all right. And he picks where he wants to see them. And so there's anticipation in that end. And they wait for him. And the advisors all already around him. I think Pharaoh is ready and anticipation to reject. Whatever it is they're going to ask for, I think he wants to put up a fight between his gods and their god. I think this is something that uh, he's prepared to mock them. He's he's you know prepared himself to uh, be arrogant to lift himself up. Um, I think the fact that they worship their own god and have never embraced the religious world of of the Egyptians, not one of their idols has ever been introduced into the culture of these of this slave nation. No matter how much the slave nation, you know, from his perspective, he'd be like, "We have provide, we literally provide everything from you, and you won't even you won't even recognize one of our gods. We have so many to choose from." You won't even recognize me as a representation of the God, whether it was the sun God or the Nile God or the, you know, what it, I have no idea what God this particular Pharaoh thought he was. Um, I know, I know people who think that this Pharaoh is the Pharaoh Ramses from the movie believe that Ramses identified himself as the representation of the sun God on earth, but I don't know if this particular Pharaoh, who I don't think is Ramses, and we've covered that in a previous episode, uh, I don't know what God he associated himself with. But either way, he's like, you won't even recognize who I represent, who I am in the essence of here on earth. So I think he's he's kind of always been annoyed. I think the Pharaohs have always been annoyed that the Egypt that you know the Egyptian gods have never been attractive to the to the Israelites, even though. Even though at one point, you know, Israel was in essence ran the country and now they don't like they clearly their God had let them down and had subjugated them to all the idols of Egypt. And yet they refused to worship any of the idols. So I think Pharaoh might be kind of kind of uh, going for a fight here. And I think he's he's doing that on 
you know, as he's waiting, he's like, all right, let's, let's bring these guys in. And I think the advisors are ready for what's, what they believe is going to happen. And they're, they, uh, they're ready to be uh, asked questions and to have their answers. And, and so Moses and Aaron walk in and of course they're going to be honoring and respectful because that's the nature of heaven and they wait to be spoken to. And, and this is something I think some people who have a quote word from God need to learn from. Right there's lots of people who get a word and they want to be heard and they believe that because quote they have the word of God in their hands or in their hearts or they heard something whatever theological bend you might have they believe it gives them the right to be rude they they believe it you know they can they can ruin your life or they can change your life or they can ruin the meeting or they can they can stand up and uh, circumvent all of the rules of etiquette in a particular, you know, uh, what should we say? Like a school board meeting or a town hall meeting. Like, I I hear the word of God. I, I will not be silent. God has spoken to me. It's like, guys, you know what? He, I'm not doubting that he might've given you a word. All right. Let's not, let's not, I'm not going to argue that point. What I am going to argue is that there's no way that he would go counter to the culture of heaven which is honor and love, in order to speak a word of heaven to bring heaven to earth. He's not going to go two different ways on this. That's part of the whole concept that we come from, that God is good all the time. He's not going to be evil and kill people in order to prove a point that he's, that he's not evil and he's loving. Like It's just it's ridiculous to have the, that dualism in people's minds, but we've been trained in it. For so long that we think it's normal. It's not. So I believe that Moses and Aaron stand in honor and they wait. And eventually, Pharaoh speaks. I think think he wanted to know what the request was. And I think they told him. We would like to take our people into the wilderness three days journey to worship our God and then we will return. And he was like, hmm, haven't we covered this before? Well, yeah, but we're here to ask again. Under whose power, authority are you coming to me? Well, we're coming to you in the name of our God, Elohim. And then he said, well, I don't know this guy. I don't know this God. And you don't recognize me as a God, so does he have any power whatsoever? Because clearly he can't get you free, or, you know, you would be. He clearly wants you to be slaves because you are. You're slaves to me. I'm a God, and you're slave to our gods because all of them are doing just great. So clearly you're, I'm guessing this Elohim is uh, not too powerful. Can he, does he have any power? Can you show me anything in which he has power? Now, Aaron is waiting. Moses looks at Aaron and says, throw down your rod. So Aaron throws down his rod. And the staff becomes a snake. Now, a lot of people are like, I thought Moses' rod became a snake. Well, Moses' rod did become a snake. 
back at the burning bush and in, I believe in front of Aaron in the wilderness and then in front of Aaron and all the elders and their initial meeting. But here, Moses tells Aaron to throw down his, his rod and it became a snake and it did. And I imagine Pharaoh's like, ooh, ah. Now, Pharaoh can't act too surprised, right? Because he's an arrogant dictator. And he can't act scared because he's a god. Why would a god be scared? Or at least a, the only representation of the god in human form that, that exists on the earth. So, in essence, a god. But I understand he may not have actually thought himself to be a god, just acted like it. <laughs> and people treated him as such. So, he might have looked back and said, hmm, interesting. So Pharaoh, I believe, in that moment, right, he gets another opportunity. He gets an opportunity to choose. He can choose at this point to say, all right, your God clearly has some power. I'll recognize that, and I'll let you guys go. You can go worship this God who can turn rods into snakes. I don't know why you'd want to worship him, worship him because clearly he can't get you free of Egypt, but go have your week's vacation, come back and work even harder. Have a nice day. He he has an out here, or at least he has an on-ramp to an out from his from his previous answer. God is full of opportunities. But instead, he chooses to say. Let's, let's see if I can match that. So he calls in his magicians, uh, his, his, what does it say? His sorcerers and his wise men. So the wise men were seen mostly as, a lot of them were at some level priests, right? They, they studied the stars. They were, they were, they were into physics and math, math. Um, they understood chemistry. Like these guys, again, not ignorant people, cavemen-ish type of thing. These guys, these guys are no idiots. Uh, they know their stuff. They've studied hard. Uh, they're, they're, yeah, they're going to know what's going on. You've got um, sorcerers and magicians. Now, both of those, uh, some of those have to do with, the wise men have to do with astronomy. Sorcerers tend to do with astrology they study the gods or the spirits of the world. They're, they're probably, I would consider them very like spiritually, um, their frequencies are tied into the frequencies of the spirit realms, the various realms that God had created back in Genesis, they're aware of. And they're here, they hear voices, they get senses, they, they work the dark arts, if you want to call it that. And the magicians are... Uh, that that word is the word for pharmaceuticals. They're <laughs> drug dealers. <laughs> they understand. That's horrible. Well, it's true though. It not yeah. They understand potions and again chemistry, and they understand various roots and healing powers. Like these guys would have been pretty much the doctors of their day as well. Uh, they probably had actually studied. Similar things to the wise men, but more in the idea of how how does the anatomy work so that we understand how to heal it. Um, yeah, pretty pretty 
powerful people all the way around. And clearly, uh, they all had access to and interactions with, I would call a, a spirit realm that was against God. Over the years, they had learned incredible things of the, of the dark spirit world, of the enemy world. And they, were, they interacted with it uh, in their own disciplines, but they interacted with it. And so Pharaoh calls him in, and I don't know if this is arrogance on his part or curiosity, like, are we really that powerful, or competition? Like, yeah, all right, let's put your God up against our gods and see what happens. Or if he had seen this kind of stuff before, like, like did he see the rod turn into snakes before? And then he sees Moses and Aaron do it, and it's like, well, whatever. Uh, let's let's call in uh, my my guys, my team. So the team comes in, and he probably explains all what's going on, and they're all waiting there. Now, this whole time that they're waiting there, Aaron's rod is still a snake on the ground. I don't know if it's curled up next to him. I don't know if it's laying out in the middle of the floor. I'm guessing guards don't really want to go grab it or throw anything at it. They're just all kind of waiting. What's Pharaoh going to do? I mean, if he told them to kill it, they would have, but he doesn't. He calls in his magicians. They see the snake. He's like, uh, you know, explains to them, this, I asked them to show me some something powerful from their God. Aaron threw down his snake, uh, his rod, and it turned into a snake. Well, can you guys do that? Or maybe he said, you better do that. But they evidently know this trick. They know this, this enchantment, this process to do uh, the same thing. And they do it with all of their staffs. Now, I don't know why Moses, you know, you know, theoretically, Moses could have thrown down his staff and turned, they could have all been snakes, but Moses evidently still hanging on to his rod. So, so Pharaoh and his court are very happy about this whole thing. Like they throw down their, their rods and their, you want to call them wands, you know, so I don't know how big all these sticks were, but they throw them down and they turn into snakes. And now all we got a bunch of snakes scurrying all around the floor. And I think Moses, uh, uh, Pharaoh's probably pretty happy. They're, the whole court is happy. The ambassadors are, are you know, politely applauding. And then, and then they're thinking this whole, like, powerful God thing is really of little consequence. Their God is of little consequence. And Moses' rod, or Aaron's rod, I'm sorry, starts chasing down the other rods. This, this had to be funny. Moses' rod, or sorry, Aaron's rod, not Moses, Aaron's rod gets aggressive. Like you kind of see the snake like rile up and start slithering across the floor. And their snakes, maybe a couple of them are defensive. Maybe a couple of them start to run. I don't know, but this snake eats them. I don't know if you've ever seen a snake eat, but I've seen them eat like mice. I've seen them eat, you know, a lizard. I've seen one anaconda thing try to eat a gator once that was gruesome but these things don't happen like the snakes don't eat quickly right they they eat slow they they keep gulping down gulping down slowly crushing and killing the the animal that they've caught unless of course they're venomous but even so they just keep swallowing until it's eventually down there then they go sit somewhere and relax until it you know till it digests and sometimes that could take days so 
So this whole scene to me is bizarre because I don't know if, if Aaron's rod could swallow quickly. I don't, I don't know if these snakes were really small and went down easy. I have no idea, but it had to be both gruesome and fascinating at the same time. And as he's chasing them around, I'm guessing that the magicians had and the sorcerers and the wise men had to be a little bit upset because not only are they losing their walking stick or their rod, which I think in some cases was more of a, a rod of like honor, not necessarily one of a walking stick. I think Moses's and Aaron's probably looked more like a shepherd's uh, stick, like something they used uh, in representation of the fact that they were shepherds of their people. I think the representations of the rods of the Egyptian magicians, sorcerers, and wise men were probably shorter, not necessarily like canes, but something that they would hold in their hand more like a wand than an actual walking stick. But it doesn't matter, really. I just throw that out for my imagination, and you're asking yourself, what if, what did it look like? But they know they know the prophetic sign, right? They understand what's going on in the spirit realm. They're saying that, like, it, it upsets them that they're losing this rod that was theirs, and now it's gone. But it's being eaten by the rod of Aaron, and Aaron isn't even the most important person in this hierarchy system right now. Moses is, so they're like, it's not even the most important guy's stick that's eating our sticks. It's the second guy whose rod is eating our rods. And when it's all said and done, when he swallows the last snake, which no one tried to stop, everybody watches this whole thing. When it's all said and done, boom, Aaron's rod is now a stick. I don't know if it crawled back over to, over to Aaron and laid down in front of him and then just turned into a stick and you know Aaron picks it up again. That's what I picture happened, but he could have turned into a stick right in front of, uh, you know, maybe he made a run for Pharaoh and then just stopped and turned into a stick. I have no idea. But Aaron picks up the picks up the rod, and every I, I don't think anybody said anything. Because the, the magicians aren't going to say, well, clearly that's a sign from God. They just sat there. They're looking at Pharaoh. And it says in verse 13, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard. And I think that's important because the writing of this language means it was not an immediate thing. He had another opportunity to choose. And with every invitation you get from God to choose kingdom over darkness, when you choose to choose light over darkness, to choose his way or your, your prideful way, Every time you refuse it, it becomes easier to refuse the next time. God showed that the snake, the idol of the snake, was powerless to defend itself. That the things that, that they worship were powerless in front of him because, of, because they, you know, he ate them all. They couldn't even run from him, let alone defend themselves from him. And he knew that everyone in the room understood what was going on in the spirit realm because it was being mirror, you know, shown in the physical realm. And Pharaoh still took the time and ultimately became or made the decision not to let the people go. He just is like, no. Go back to work. He dismissed them. I also think 
the magicians and sorcerers after, and, the, and the wise men after Moses and Aaron leave, if they didn't discuss things with Pharaoh, which they probably, he might have had some questions for them, I'm sure they discussed things amongst themselves. Because I think they knew right away, well, at least it, as they discussed it, like we're, we, we may be up against something here. We need to like double down on our, our studies. We need to double down on, on our uh, powers because I think we're up against it. And they probably had gotten some sense of that from the enemy's realm anyway because the mere fact that, that Moses showed up, I think, had the enemy on edge. Like, dang it, I thought I got rid of this guy. All right, like they they are spiritually attuned to what's going on, and they're they're thinking we're up with something is is amiss. So I think this whole scenario that they saw in the courthouse, in the court throne court courts of in the throne room of Pharaoh was like, all right, whoa, this is it. Like this is the guy we're up against. Not a big deal. Snakes aren't a big deal, but these things tend to escalate. That's what I think. That's what I think. So in uh, verses 14 and 15, right, then Moses, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let my people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes to the river, confront him on the bank of the Nile and take your hand, take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. That would be Moses' staff this time. Then say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. When the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish of the Nile will die and the river will stink and the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch it over, over the waters of Egypt and over the streams of the canals and over the ponds that are all reservoirs and they will turn into blood. The blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded, and he raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials, and he struck the water of the Nile, and all the river was changed to blood. The fish died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not even could not drink its water. The blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said instead he turned and he went into his palace and he did not even take it to his to even to this this heart did not take even this to heart sorry and all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water that was in the river all right there's a lot going on in this particular miracle and it's important I think again to see that this miracle, Again, exposes the lie that the river was was all powerful. It's showing Pharaoh that the god of of Egypt, uh, the gods of Egypt, are not as powerful as the god of the Hebrews. It also doesn't kill any of the Egyptians. It does kill a lot of fish, but he also allows them to continue to drink water if they dig a new, you know, alongside. They can get fresh water. It's, it's, it's an example, and it's powerful, but it's not deadly. It doesn't cause disease. It doesn't cause death of people. And within probably, whatever, a few days, the river is completely washed out of blood, and everything goes back to normal. It's, this, is, this is important, I think, 
The Lord is is allowing bad things to happen, but not to the point where he is causing the death of people. Now, the enemy wants to kill people, not God. He's exposing a lie. He's bringing light to the darkness so that the choice can be made out of, out of um, not ignorance. What do I want to say? So, so that the choice can be made out of a full awareness of what, the, of what is really you know, going on behind the scenes, that death is actually in the Nile that the God of the Nile is not powerful and is bringing death. So Pharaoh goes to the, you know, God says, here, go to, you know, bring this other sign. Expose the character of the idol. Uh, and remind, remind him that this is an invitation to worship Yahweh. God is asking, and you're not listening, Pharaoh. God knows more about you than you would like to admit. And he knows that you're going to probably keep refusing them. And these idols you worship will ultimately strike out to kill you because they do not want you to turn your heart toward God. So Moses and Aaron arrive at the Nile. When? When Pharaoh's going down there. Now I'm guessing he probably drew a crowd of people whenever he went to the Nile because he would go to the Nile to pay tribute to the God and to also take a bath. And they said what God wanted to say. Let my people go, worship me. You haven't let my people go. So this is what's going to happen. I'm going to send you a sign. I'm going to cover the Nile. I'm going to cover the, you know, the water with my rod, the, strike the Nile, the river's going to turn into blood. You need to know that this is a powerful God that you're messing with because that's a language that you understand. But you also need to understand he's not here to kill you, but your enemies are. So this whole scene plays out in a day. And the Egyptians watched the whole thing. This is a national sign. It wasn't just localized to the, uh, to the blood of the Nile that the Pharaoh was in. And I'm sure that as they expose this idol and everybody's watching, they're all observing Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's response uh, you know, a prideful person in front of everybody becomes evidently even more arrogant, right? They become more prideful. They don't want to lose. And he has a chance here. He has an opportunity. To, you know, the Nile turns to blood and the fish start to float. And he's like, oh, this isn't good. And it immediately evidently starts to smell. I mean, it doesn't take too long for fish to start to rot in the desert sun. And so he sees an entire an entire economic stream for the nation, an entire uh, food source for the nation, ruined in a matter of, we'll call it minutes. And all he has to do, now, now the request is public, all he has to do is let the slave nation go for a week off to go worship their God. He could have walked away. He could have said, all right, all right, I'll, you know, let me consider this. And he could have pulled his advisors in and he could have said, listen, guys, I don't want to, I don't want to keep playing games. I have no idea what their God can do. He's, he's a little scary. Uh, he clearly is very powerful. Our idols clearly can't stop him from doing things. 
So maybe we should let these people go. Uh, we'll just make, you know, sure arrangements that they'll be back in a week. Let's just, you know, we'll we'll give everyone a we'll tell everyone we'll shut the country down for, you know, for a week to to stop the spread of the of this god's power. <laughs> I I chose those words on purpose because of what happened way back at the original round of covid, right? Two two weeks to stop the stop the spread. Anyways, we all know what what happened, but Farrell could have chosen chose the same sort of mentality. Hey, listen, let's just we'll 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 frame it so it looks like we're in control, but des- ultimately we're just going to say yes to their god. But instead, he calls out his wise men, his sorcerers, and his magicians, and he's like, "Can you do that?" And they did, which again speaks to the power that they had. The enemy has a lot of power. Like we can't. I think a lot of people uh, listen. I know God's all powerful. But let's not pretend the enemy doesn't have any. Now, he doesn't have any in comparison to God. But it's one of those things where you can't also, you know, be stupid about it. Or I should say flippant. So the the Pharaoh's magicians and sorcerers and wise men turn water into blood. So Pharaoh's like, yeah, listen, your God's no more powerful than mine. And clearly you're still slaves. So I win. And he walked away, satisfied that he still had more power and authority than Hebrews God. And the Egyptians realized that if they dug holes next to the river, they still got fresh water. And that was enough, enough water to live on. And eventually, uh, it says uh, seven days passed, you know, after. So I'm guessing within a week. The, the Niles all filled up. It probably are all, all cleaned up. It probably happened much like anything, right? You throw dirt in a in a brook, throw a big ball of dirt. I used to love doing this, right? And the dirt would hit and it'd be all muddy. And then the flow of the, of the brook would just keep it moving. My grandfather owned a little camp, little trailer on the side of a little brook in, in Vermont. It was gorgeous. I, I remember it as a child. Right, I've gone back since then, and I think, wait, like it just seems so much bigger back then. The field, the 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 mound, uh, uh, you know, the the yeah, the field, the hills, the brook seemed huge to me. But I remember they would. I look back now; they just had to keep me busy. They wanted me to create a beach for them to go walking because the brook was just filled with with rocks. You couldn't, you didn't go in there without shoes on. Everybody had had. Uh, you know, we call them brook shoes, and you would just walk. You could walk the the brook for miles, and we would. We'd go walking, you know, a mile down and into a water hole and slide down the rocks. It was just an awesome place in nature. But I remember my mom telling me, like, we need to create a beach. I don't want to wear my shoes, right? Just this this area right here. Just throw all the rocks onto the bank. And that seemed like an easy task, you know, and I would just start tossing rocks for whatever. I, it seemed like hours. I don't know if I spent hours doing it or not, but I'm sure for my mom, it was also seemed like hours of peace and quiet, like Bob's in the brook throwing rocks. <laughs> and it never worked. I could create like this little spot where it was sandy. And then I'd be working on the next spot and I'd turn around and the rocks had kind of rolled right into the same spot, but... That's what happens, right? So I kind of picture that happening with the blood. Everything was blood, 
But as the Nile continued to flow, the blood was pushed out, and eventually it all just turned back to water, and everybody was fine. It was like, wow, that was that that was a close one. We dodged that one. They, you know, and I'm sure they gave their gods credit for it. The god of the Nile is more powerful. See, he was turned to blood, but he overpowered the you know the the Yahweh this Elohim of the Hebrews, and boom. Now we're, we are the most powerful nation on the planet. And then they waited seven more days. And in seven days, we will be back again on the Epic Narrative. Thanks so much for hanging out. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts. Well, out here with my dog... Doing some Bob thoughts. He doesn't have a leash on. So if you hear me suddenly start yelling for my, yelling for Zacapa to come home, uh, that's what's going on. <laughs> oh, anyway, some of the, some of, one of the main thoughts I had today was, I don't think I said it in a concise way, but I believe what the Lord's going to do with the quote plagues He's going to shine his light and expose the character and the desire of the demons, principalities, idols that Egypt worships. So, like with the snakes, uh, I think he was showing that they were weak, uh, that they were easily, you know, destroyed, that that they weren't that big of a deal. Uh, you know, demons often like to do that. Devil likes to do that. Um, forget who used to say it. I think his name is Reinhard Monkey. He was a, an amazingly powerful evangelist, but he used to say that the devil is a mi- mouse with a microphone. And uh, yeah, it's just not a lot there when you really get down to exposing it. I think the Lord was doing that with the with the snakes. Uh, also. Right with the blood, I think again he was showing that the Nile, which was supposed to be of this life-giving, powerful God, who never stops. I think he was showing. Look at it's it's a this principality has nothing but death in mind. That's the end goal of the enemy always is to kill, steal, and destroy. But again. He didn't kill or steal from anybody. God didn't. He exposed the character of the idol for the Egyptians to understand that that this is what you're actually worshiping. This is what you're actually trying to appease, and there, there's no appeasing it. I think the Lord's going to continue to do that with the plagues. I, uh, so, I, yeah, I just, my thought was after, after listening to it, I was like, uh, I don't think I actually said that very clearly. But you'll, I, I'll say it again, I'm sure, because we've got a few more plagues to go. And I, I named these chapters, uh, you know, round one, round two, round three, because to me, it's, I kind of wanted that boxing match type of, uh, type of fight. But it's really not a fight for the Lord. It's really not. It's the enemy is fighting because he's desperate and he's, he's being exposed. Nobody likes to be exposed, so I think we're gonna, um, yeah, we're, we're gonna we're gonna hit on that uh, obviously over the next several chapters, 
several paragraphs uh, in these chapters. And I uh, hope you enjoy it. Um, I'm, I'm enjoying Exodus, I really am. I, 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 uh, there's just a lot there about freedom uh, and coming out of slavery that I think is so applicable to everyone's life. And, uh, and, and it exposes, I think, a lot about governments and power and authority that, that a lot of us put up with or have put up with or freedoms that we've willingly given up in exchange for safety and convenience. So, uh, yeah, stick with it. And uh, I'll see you here again next week on The Epic Narrative. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.